Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking... But I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Hello, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. My name is Tom Marvin, Senior Technical Editor here at BikeRadar.com and MBUK magazine. Joining me through the relative magic of Microsoft Teams, we've got Tom Law. He is our Bike Radar YouTube mountain bike presenter. How's it going, Tom? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, and we also have Nick Clark. He is Bike Radar's digital writer, also on the mountain bike side of things. How's it going, Nick? Yeah, not bad, thanks, Tom. Excellent. Nick, what have you been up to recently? What's fun? What's popping? What's hitting all your spots? What's going on? Uh, well, things hitting all my spots is probably our amazing trip out shooting for MBUK, where we got attacked by helicopter gunships and chimneys oh, up yes, on Salisbury we... Plain, which was very interesting, but unfortunately, I think we missed the money shot, didn't we? We went a bit too we, early. We missed the money shot. We, we found um, the up on Salisbury Plain, obviously they do a lot of military training, and uh, we found a few helicopters were circling and landing on a landing strip, and uh, the rest of the photographer got very excited about the, <laughs> the possibility of having a Chinook taking off over our heads as we looked epic on our XC bikes. But it all happened a bit too quick and we missed the shot. <laughs> yeah, a shame. But we, there must, have, must be something good in the can. Fingers but crossed I, anyway. I've, I've seen the pictures. That there, there's a, a couple of cool little bits and pieces. Um, <laughs> you, you had a good day on a photo shoot then, you enjoyed it. Yeah, really good. Lapped of the sun and uh, yeah, getting that base tan in for summer now. Based on you mean you burnt to a crisp, Nick? Yeah, <laughs> I saw yeah, you. So you could say that. You could say that. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, there was a little salmon in my van on the way back to Bristol. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you what, I've been peely today, but uh, 
What can you do? Part of the, the fun. exuberance of youth. <laughs> Tom, what about you? What have you been up to recently? Uh, well, I've just about recovered from our group ride that we had with the, the bike radar guys after I stacked it on that infamous one last run of the day, making up some lost time with that in the Peak District. And I've been away on a trip recently with work to test some new stuff uh, in a country that I was not expecting to give me 25 degree heat and uh, yeah, sunstroke either. So that that was nice. An unexpected surprise. Dreamy. Lovely stuff. I'm all right. Thanks for asking, guys. I, uh... Yeah, what have you been up to, Tom? <laughs> Nick, we always seem to forget this. We always like, forget I, this. I briefly Just... sort of asked Tom how he was earlier, but then we always forget to um, jump I'm into all, it I'm afterwards. all good, thanks. I, uh, I've just finished, uh, very apt for what's coming up in this podcast, a uh, cross-country bike test for MVUK. I've also just come back from a cross-country bike launch in Colorado, which was great. Uh, that was a Pivot Mac 4SL, which you'll be able to see on Bike Radar as we speak, and listen to, uh, watch a video about it as well on our YouTube channel. But yeah, no, all, all good. Enjoying the sun. It's very nice that it's not raining right now for the whole of the bank holiday weekend, which is coming up. Right then, let's move on. Now, as slightly kind of hinted to there, um, this podcast is all about the world of cross-country racing. Now, following uh, the first round of the XC World Cup in Novi Mesto, young Nick wrote an excellent article on BikeRadar.com titled Eight Defining Features of an XC World Cup Bike in 2023. And we thought, given that this weekend is uh, the second round of the XC World Cup in Lenzerheide, we would do a little bit of a podcast talking about the world of cross-country in 2023 and what you might expect to see on a World Cup XC bike this year. So, without further ado, let's look at point number one of eight. It is fair to say that in recent years, with the ever gnarlier nature of cross-country racing, especially at courses like Novi Mesto, which is famous for being very rooty, very rough, um, that full suspension bikes dominate. Tom, what's your thought on full sus XC bikes? Why might they dominate? What are their good bits? And perhaps, what are their bad bits? I think they're so well-rounded nowadays, like we've got some other points that we'll discuss later that helps with their capability. But yeah, the courses are getting so technical, you know, they, they demand a full suspension bike, you know, to help the riders, you know, go as, as quick as they can. Um, you know, they a lot of it's to do with fatigue as well. Obviously, a hardtail may be a smidge quicker on certain courses, but if it's more fatiguing, then you might end up actually going slower. So I think it's that combination of that additional capability and also that little bit of extra comfort just because the guys are taking a real rough ride down some of this stuff these days. I guess we've seen maybe not massive jumps in the last year or two, but over the past sort of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, jumps as well in sort of full suspension efficiency. Obviously, back in the day, you know, if, if you're pounding on the pedals and your suspension is bouncing up and down, that's robbing a lot of watts. But these days, certainly on a lot of the cross-country bikes I've ridden recently, they're actually, even when they're fully open, still pretty efficient machines. Nick, you've, I know you've been riding, well, you rode uh, the new Specialised Epic recently. We'll, we'll go on to suspension travel later on because I think that's interesting. But how did you find the Epic uh, when it wasn't locked out? In that, in that full gulp mode, um, I found it really good. So the pedal efficiency was really good. Um, and I'd probably say it was likened to, uh, I mean, what it felt to me was sort of like a top stone. Had a little bit of give in the rear stay, but nothing. Pedal bob was pretty much all gone. Rode really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see like sort of in those interchangeable uh, conditions where you would go for a hardtail or a full sus, that would probably tick the boxes. Mm-hmm. But on that same point, I'd also say, you know, looking at Nervi Mesto, we did see Martin Videre 
ride in the old epic so whether he found the same advantage it's hard to say yeah okay and the older uh, the old epic had the brain shock it had longer travel and it was sort of a, obviously a much more traditional xc race bike yeah rather than this replacing hardtail epic that specializes just brought out yeah well i say we'll dip into the epic later on because it's quite it is a very interesting bike one thing i found on, on recent xc bikes as well is bikes seem to go down the route of either having like a really efficient natural feeling open mode on their suspension thanks to you know suspension linkages or they've got very effective lockouts i'm thinking like the orbea ois for example it's got this squid lock and there's obviously other examples out there whereby you have a a two or three position lockout on the bar which becomes really useful for you know those uphill sections where you maybe you'll put it into the the medium or the sort of medium firm mode for a bit of give at the back or you can fully lock it out for those uh for the sprints or for um, tarmac sections as well and then obviously fully open it out for all the performance on the way down one of the developments in XE over the last couple of years is obviously the introduction of the XE Eliminator race, which takes place before the XCO. It's part of the gridding process. You do get points. Not all the racers are invited into that race. Now, we saw something relatively interesting happening with the new Cervelo full suspension bike um, at Novio Mesto in the XCE race. Do you want to explain maybe what that was? Yes, obviously Cervelo have recently released the ZFS5 their uh, new full suspension bike uh, but they actually replaced the shock with a what looked like a 3d printed aluminium shock shuttle almost you know sort of to make it basically a hardtail effectively it kept the sagged geometry of the stock bike so it wasn't sort of altering the geometry too much but yeah for that super short intense 20 minutes or so of racing where efficiency is is key you're not too bothered about comfort interesting workaround of the rules because you the rules state that you have to use the same bike for both events so it allows them to use effectively a hardtail for the um yeah for the eliminator or the short course and then they can just wham the shock back in for the uh, for the xco so interesting to see what the uci think of that and whether they'll you know play their usual game and uh, yeah look for look for closing that loophole i i, I loved it when that i saw that I'm a, I'm a big fan of people bending rules uh, for advantage as long as they're within the rules. And as you say, like you, you know, if it had been dry on the Saturday and raining on the Sunday, obviously the UCI wouldn't be like, well, you have to use your, you know, your your super fast rolling tires on a muddy course. You know, they would never say that. So, presume like how at what point does that line blur between changing a shock? Is that any different to changing a tire? I think it's really interesting, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed seeing that because I'm pretty sure it ruffled some feathers. And I'm all for ruffling a feather or two every now and again. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting development. I wonder if more people might end up doing that as well. And as you say, set for the sagged position as well. Again, if you put thought into it, obviously the correct way to do it. Sagged position is the dynamic position on the bike. That's what you're going to be riding on. It's what it's going to feel like and obviously helps keep that head angle a little bit slacker as well. Yeah, pretty cool. All right, let's move on to the second one. Now, Nick... You've claimed in your article that top tube mountain shocks have taken over. And I guess I would add to that top tube mountain shocks with flex stay rear ends have taken over. Do you want to explain what you mean by this and why it might be the case? It just seems to be the position that many manufacturers are putting their shock now. Um, there's very few exceptions. One of the main reasons I think for this, especially like on marathon courses, fitting two bottles in that front triangle. But I also think it could just be, you know, the ultimate iteration of a bike frame possibly following those hardtail sort of lines i don't know we've seen a lot of it every new bike seems to be with it i think for the bmc four strokes being updated that used to be uh 
a vertical shock and by the rear, but they've obviously made space there. So, yeah, I would probably... Okay. And Pinabello's new Dogma as well. But that's an interesting one because it's got the adjustable... Uh, well, so we think adjustable shock mounts on the top, so mm-hmm. you can run it in different mill. Different travel options. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and the flex stay. So what is the point of a flex stay, Tom? What is it? Why would you have it? Why would it be? Why is it particularly prominent on an XC bike? So on a normal full suspension bike, either a linkage actuated single pivot or specialised with their FSR system, you'll have a physical pivot on either of those. So flex stay basically eliminates that to save weight, and it uses flex tuned into the carbon or aluminium to uh, take up the place of that pivot. So obviously the, the key beneficiary of that is it's a lighter system. I've heard numbers, you know, sort of between 150 to 200 grams that it saves, which when you're looking for 50 grams here or there, that's a big chunk of weight to save. So I think that's why we've seen it, uh, you know, rise in popularity, uh, not just on XC bikes, but like even your long-term Merida, Tom, running that flex day system. So not just limited mm. to XC bikes. So I think just less weight, less maintenance. And it doesn't seem to, in my experience anyway, affect the suspension action too much. So I think if you can get away with, with running it like that, why not do it? Quite often you find that those flex day bikes do pedal relatively well for some reason. There seems to be, it's not that they're insensitive, but they seem to have seem to be a bit stiffer off the top, to use a, a cliched a cliche term. So pretty well suited to XC bikes. Back in the day when they first sort of started getting the flex day, there was often a, a little question over the control of the rebound from the shop because obviously there's some twang in that in that carbon that naturally pulls it back a little bit faster than one. But it seems that actually, you know, as I say, the ones I've ridden recently in recent years, they don't seem to have any particularly untoward suspension uh, feels. Now, countering that, I guess, would be obviously pivots. Mac 4SL, um, there's information about that on Bike Radar. They've kept their DW link. One of the interesting things that they said about keeping the DW link, which is so you have a, a solid front triangle, you have a solid rear triangle, and they're joined by two co-rotating links, uh, and they keep they kept their vertical shock position on that. And they said that by keeping the shock low, you bettered the weight distribution of the frame. And also by keeping all of the linkages towards the rear end of that front triangle, it, it meant that they were able to better tune the front triangle stiffness because it was a bit more independent from the suspension linkages. They got around the whole two bottle cage uh, issue by slinging a bottle cage mount underneath the top tube. Um, And they claim you can get two full-size bottles in there. I didn't have a chance to try that. You can also sling a third underneath the down tube, so you can carry three bottles on that bike. But whether you would or not is a different matter. But as I say, I think I have friends who buy, uh, you know, when they're buying their XC bikes, and they really look for that double bottle cage capability for those marathon roads it's, it's uh yeah interesting and important but yeah it does feel like a lot of xc bikes they do all look quite similar yeah it's the same silhouette just a different branding then for some example what do you think of the new chevello and the santa cruz too similar or well i mean they are they are sibling brands uh they're both owned by the same people I, there was obviously when um, Savella launched that bike, there was a lot of people saying, oh, they've just borrowed the same moulds from, from Santa Cruz. And I think if you actually look at the tube shapes and tube profiles, they're obviously not the same. Yeah. Very similar, but not the same, which does mean that, you know, being a carbon mould, they are different moulds. So they're not the same mould. I think we yeah. can safely say that. Maybe there's a bit of cross-learning going on between the two companies, or maybe, maybe that silhouette 
is just the best silhouette for XC bikes with current production techniques and suspension. I don't know. Yeah, it does seem to work quite well. Yeah, maybe that's it. Right, let's move on. Increased fork travel. Now, this goes back again to that discussion we had earlier on about tracks getting more and more technical. So we're seeing more and more bikes this year coming out with 120mm suspension at the front or maybe 110mm in terms of the giant Anthem, 110mm on that. Obviously, there's still plenty of bikes coming with 100mm as well, but back in the day, 100mm was like the go-to amount of travel for an XC bike, but it seems to be changing. Nick, any thoughts on this? Do you like XC bikes with more travel at the front, or would you like that slammed front end, underbiked perhaps on the more technical courses, but lighter weight? What's your take? Uh, more travel every day of the week. That's more travel every day of the week, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, it's more of a pain to take up to the hill, but you know, if you're racing at the top and right at the limit, you want a bit more security on the descents and be able to push it a bit harder around the corners. If you can make up time on the descents, it's just as valuable as making it up on the hills. And I think looking at some of the step casting technology on sort of like those Fox 34s, you're not adding too much weight, really. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you've ridden the Orbea Ois, which is what, 120, 20 mil at the yep. front. And that's, again, a bike that's way more capable than a lot of bikes on 100 mil, whatever the geometry is. So that specialized Epic Evo World Cup I was riding was 110 and 80 mil at the rear. Um, and the geometry helped it, but it still fit. I mean, I got into trouble on a rock section, which Tom kindly pointed out in the launch video for that, because there was just not enough travel to go through it. I found it difficult. I think I probably would take more travel every day. Tom, we're seeing increased fork travel paired with increased rear wheel travel as well. So the Orbea Ois, for example, 120mm, the new Pivot Mac 4SL. That's an interesting bike. I'm not going to bang on about it too much because there's loads of information online, but that has four travel options from 95 up to 115, depending on the models you buy, and the flip chip in the in the Rocker Link. Do you think, are you uh, in agreement with Nick that more travel on XC bikes is a good thing? Or are you uh, harking back to the old school days where... 80 to 100 mil at the back and 100 mil at front. I think the bikes are so efficient nowadays and the weight difference is so minimal that why why wouldn't you have that that extra travel? I mean, a good example is in a recent video I was riding my dad's old 2005 Rocky Mountain. Uh, so it's a 26 inch 100 mil travel cross country bike with a period RockShox SID. So 32 mil stanchions, 26 inch wheels. Compared to the latest 35mm RockShox Sid Ultimate, it's only 80 grams lighter, despite mm-hmm. the fact it's loads smaller, it's quick release axle. You know, like put the two side by side, you'd think it's impossible for them to weigh basically the same. So I think that when the, the weight penalty is that minimal, why wouldn't you have it, especially when the courses are are so technical that you're gonna be you're gonna be needing that that stiffness as nick says you know if you're going to be saving yourself some time in the corners you're probably not going to be losing it thanks to 80 grams on the fork so yeah for me i i'm completely in agreement i think it's just the the way that things are are going to go i don't see them getting any longer than 120 but who knows in the future we possibly said that about 100 mil 10 years ago i guess um probably will still be those shorter travel options out there you know if you're a smaller lighter rider for example Maybe you don't want to be dragging that much travel up and down the hill, especially if it's coming in the form of a burlier fork, like a 34 step cast. You could drop down to 100 mil, get a SID SL or a 32 step cast. You're probably not going to be pushing that towards its limits because maybe if you're only weighing 60 kilos, maybe you don't need that. I mean, we all 
sadly way north of 70 odd kilos so maybe we benefit from it more and, and maybe some of the sort of the taller more powerful riders out there as well probably are benefiting from that extra travel that extra burliness that comes with those longer travel forks and can get away with it yeah absolutely yes definitely yeah and you, you unfortunately you're absolutely right about the uh, us being over 70 kilos but but again like the the launch that i was on like some of the terrain was it was tough you know and like i was hitting some some big old drops on what was basically an xc race bike and some gnarly rock gardens as well so i, I definitely want to be chucking you know a, a, a old school sort of you know back in the day when sids had 28 mil stanchions mm. you know let alone 32s so yeah for me i just think that the course is just getting so tech now and the riders are, are pushing that hard yeah, I think it's um, it's a good thing. But you, you're quite right with the with the lighter riders, they can sort of get away with that that 32 still. As it's still it's not a noodle by any stretch of the imagination. No. But for the but for the heavy, slightly heavier guys, obviously it's all relative. Yeah, that that extra extra burliness and bit of extra travel, it's a nice way to go. I've been riding uh, these XC hardtails recently, and they're all 100 mil. Um, they're all slightly more traditional as well, and I think we'll come on to. Maybe some of the differences between hardtails and full suspension in a later point. I'm just checking my notes, and yes, we will. But they're all coming, yeah, with 100 mil at the front. Uh, two of them, oh, I've got three different forks on three different bikes, actually. I've got a Lefty Ocho, 100 mil. Uh, there is a Sid with 100 mil, but in the 35 mil stanchion version, so it's not a Sid SL. And Fox's 32 Stepcast. Um, I read them all yesterday, and while that 32 Stepcast is on paper, the light is, well, I don't know if it's lighter than the Archer, but it is like, in inverted commas, the lightest, flexiest fork out there. It really wasn't holding anything back. And of those three forks, by far and away, my favorite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, we'll move on to our next point, which is dropper posts are all but standard. Nick, would you like to explain your thinking behind this one? And maybe we'll talk about the nuance in that in a minute afterwards. Uh, I th- we've seen a lot of riders riding with dropper posts now. And, you know, for a long time, XC was holding back a bit, claiming those weight savings on the hills for, again, slower descending. Well, less manoeuvrable descending. But I think with BMC's four-stroke, including the dropper post in the frame on their flagship, like, that's saying that even the brands are thinking it's the best way. And I just, there's no way why you wouldn't. I mean, we've been riding droppers for years, and we know it's the, it had so much dynamic riding that you wouldn't get on a rigid post. I guess uh, that argument of weight is is relevant in some spaces. So... They're they're going to add what three and three four hundred grams as a, as a minimum, even for like the lightest ones, like a Fox Transfer SL. You know, it's still a relatively heavy post compared to a rigid one. So if you are trying to save those grams for a smoother, less technical course, we still see a bit of a mix. But I, I'd agree, like Navia Mesto, for example, we'll still see the majority on drop posts. Maybe if you go to what Alpstat, perhaps a bit smoother, a bit less technical. Maybe you'll still see a few rigid posts there, just saving those weights, because it's got real punchy, steep climbs at Alpstadt, and I think weight is key there. 
there was an old adage of what was it? A, a race is won on the climbs and lost on the descents, being basically you can make up loads of times on the climbs if you're really strong, but on the descents, you're obviously going to lose it if you crash and you don't want to do that. So maybe that's where the drop posts are coming on. People are realizing that actually, A, there is maybe some more time to be made on those descents if you are one of the absolutely pinned descenders. And we can see some of those coming through in the field now, like some of the absolutely incredible riders, Tom Pidcock, for example, yeah. um, and getting that post, getting that saddle dropped, even if it's like 75 mil, 100 mil, out the way does make a difference on those slightly taller, slightly sketchier feeling XT race bikes. I think that BMC auto drop is amazing though. Like the fact that mm. it goes up and down, that must save so much time. Especially if you're in the heat of a battle and even going up my local fire road, going up and down the saddle takes a bit out the legs. Being able to just operate it without having to sit down just seems like the, a no-brainer for me. 100%. Do you know how it works? Uh, it's got a dual, it's got an air system in the bar, but I don't know how it works inside the post. So I think there's, yeah, so there's two, there's two air springs in there, I think. One, Tom, do you know better than me? I'm, I'm going yeah, off what, the, what so, we wrote on, on site a few weeks ago that I read. Go on. Yeah, so it has um, a valve at the base of the seat post, sort of just above the bottom bracket, which you can charge. Then it basically sucks the post down into its travel, then uses that air to pump it back up again. But it does run out of air, um, mm -hmm. so you can probably it will last for probably one sort of long race. But then that's that's it. Um, you know, it, it loses the auto drop feature. But once you have depleted all of that stored up air, you can use it as a regular dropper post. Mm -hmm. So you're not just stuck with a, a fixed post that you then just have to sit on it. And interestingly, don't want to give too much away, but I had uh, an opportunity to speak to somebody who has used the BMC auto drop post uh, for the last couple of years and he said that at a course like Novemesto if he was coming into a section before he was using it he would stop pedaling about 10 meters before he got to an obstacle where he felt the need to use it on the auto drop post on the BMC he's literally pedaling to the point mm. that he drops the post and then drops into the into the descent so he said it saves an awful lot of time, you know, and, and, you know, fatigue as well. It's like, can you imagine having to basically do possibly 20 or 30 squats <laughs> a lap while your legs are filled with lactic acid? You know, it yeah. takes, you don't think about it, but it, it takes a lot of energy to do that. Mm -hmm. So you're saving time from the fact that you can pedal for longer before you feel the need to drop it and you're saving energy because it's dropping out of the way for you and you're not having to do all those squats. So, mm. I think we'll see more of that. I think I'd say it's probably one of the more uh, interesting developments in next in, in sort of any product launch recently. Actually, I, I'm really stoked for it. It's kind of that funny thing of like you know when um, SRAM launched Access, their wireless drivetrains, and and you moved from having to push a cable through a cable outer to just pressing a little little actuator button. Same with Shimano's Di2. Actually, you know, it's like, oh, does it really matter? And, and like. In a, on the face of it, like it's it's not much effort to you know, especially with a fresh, clean system to change gear with a cable. But pressing a button, if you're doing it lots and lots of times, it, there is something that is less fatiguing about it. There is something that all those little things that add up to make your life a bit easier, where you have to put less physical effort into doing something, has a real benefit when you're actually racing. There's obviously a trade-off because if you know if that auto drop thing weighed 500 grams, for example, would you want to add 500 grams to your bike for the sake of not having to sit down to, to drop it. But um, yeah, certainly an interesting one. I don't know how much it weighs. I don't think it obviously is 500 grams, but as a uh, a mental game to play with yourself, like at what point does it become 
obstructive rather than constructive. And I've just made that word up, and I, but I think it works. It's a, it's a beauty. <laughs> yeah, that I words. Th- that was smooth. I think looking back on uh, our mate Pidcock, without the four-stroke <laughs> being the bike that he chose to ride, I think that sort of, unfortunately for Pinarillo, sort of screams its praise too much. If you're mm. allowed open source of any bike in the uh, in the pit, then and you pick that, you, you're choosing something that is necessarily giving you a big advantage. Well, I guess he didn't have the option to race the Pinarello full size in the previous years. No, as much as he wanted to. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. I mean, also he's done pretty well on it. I mean, yeah. the whole Novio Mesto thing with Pickup was pretty incredible. What was it? He found out very shortly before the uh, XC eliminated that he was racing. And I was watching... Um, the run-up footage from it, and like literally, you know, you've got the. I think there's like, I think it's forty people in an XCE, and thirty-eight of them were like all lined up, like ready to go, all like real revved up and everything, probably taking their all their X Y Zs. I don't know what they take, and then like, you just sort of saw Pickup just like roll up to the back. He sort of sat like five ten meters off the back of the crowd, and then the the, the lights changed, and he just disappeared. He just went off. He went. It was really really beautifully impressive. I was uh, I was pretty stoked about the whole thing. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Great rider. It'd be interesting this weekend in Lenza to see how we uh, see how he goes there. If he's racing, although he probably isn't racing, is he? Uh, we'll have to see the start list. Anyway, last note on dropper posts because I realise we are rattling on a little bit longer than I planned to for this podcast. Again, going back to sort of hardtails. So you might choose a hardtail on a less technical course, one with maybe some steeper, punchy climbing, but less technical descents. And here, if you look at the world of XC hardtails that are on sale for World Cup racing, you don't see many dropper posts. And I think that is probably because if you're picking a hardtail, it's a less technical course. You're picking a hardtail to save weight and boost efficiency, and therefore maybe you're not going to have a drop post. None of the bikes in my test, they're all recent bikes. They've all got 27.2 posts, which is less dropper friendly than obviously not impossible, and none of them have dropper posts. So there we go. Just throwing that swing ball in there. I mean, they are basically gravel bikes these days, aren't they? Oh, don't, don't, so. don't even say it. Get out, Tom. Get out. That's a podcast for another day, but gravel bikes are not XC mountain bikes, and they're certainly not mountain bikes from the 1990s, and I will defend them to my death. (laughs) I will not have such chat on my podcast. Right. (laughs) I like to throw a social hand grenade into the mix every now and again, you know. I'm normally quite quiet and reserved, but every now and again, I just start lobbing hand grenades in. We might get an email to uh, podcast at bikeradar.com. And if you too think Tom needs to be shot for saying such a thing, <laughs> please email us. <laughs> right, we'll move on. More capable geometry. Now, I feel this one should have come higher up your list, Nick. And again, it ties into that thing we've been talking about through the whole podcast, that cross-country is no longer people razzing around a grassy field. They are now hitting technical sections with rock gardens, with roots, with drops, with loose corners and everything. And we are seeing more capable geometry. When we say more capable geometry, what do we mean by that, Tom? So in terms of more capable geometry, I hate using the term, but it's the whole longer, lower and slacker thing. So the bikes have got longer in terms of their reach numbers, the wheelbases and the head angles have got slacker. Um, you can also add steeper in there weirdly because obviously the trend now is for steeper seat tube angles as well uh, we had a very good i'm going to plug myself here had a very good video on the channel recently where again compared my dad's 2005 rocky mountain elements to the current 2023 version with some very non-scientific timed runs uh, and had a look at the geometry and it was quite stark i mean there's obviously nearly 20 years between those bikes but the uh, the head angle was six degrees 
different. So it was really? a seventy-one. Yeah, it was a seventy-one and a half degree head angle on my dad's bike, which when you've got a hundred mil travel fork and you're bottoming it out, that gets even steeper, yeah. which was uh, mildly terrifying to say the very least. And yeah, just the, the rest of the geometry. So longer reach on, on the newer bike by about 50 mil. Uh, the stem was 50 mil shorter on the new bike. The handlebars were, were way wider. So I think it's it's a wider, you know, sort of trend, really. Obviously, the geometry is one thing, but there's also the the stem and the and the handlebar that come into that as well. Because it was, a, I think it was a 600 mil wide bar on my dad's bike or something scary like that. So way narrower than I'd be used to. So yeah, I think the geometry is is a is a big thing, and that really highlighted it for me. Taking two bikes that, granted, are a fair way apart in uh, you know in, the, in their time period, but oh god, the old bike was mostly terrifying to ride. There's no I'm other sure words for it. Shall we throw some numbers into the mix then? So, like you say, I mean, cross country, possibly like road, has always been a little bit more traditional. So it's taken longer for this long low slack thing to come on board than it has on enduro and trail bikes. But I, I, I agree. I feel like the world of XC has now pretty well caught up. They're never going to be as long and low and as slack as a full on enduro bike because they still need that snappy reactive handling. Let's throw some numbers into the mix. I reckon like a, a size large on a full sus, we're quite often now seeing 475 mil reach. Maybe 480 at a push, 470 to 480. Head angles, 67, 67.5. is isn't now uncommon on some of the later, sort of maybe more um, progressive XC race bikes. Seat angles, they're still going to be a bit slacker than, you know, the most up-to-date enduro bikes. We're not going to be seeing 79 degrees. Probably are going to be seeing 60, 76, 77 degrees, simply because an XC bike has less travel, it's going to sag less, so that dynamic geometry is going to still have a relatively steep seat angle because it's not sagging 30 mil into its travel, for example. And yeah, and 29-inch wheels, of course, which are now utterly dominant in, in the world of XC. Yeah, I don't think we'll be seeing any mullet XC bikes anytime soon because it kind of defeats the point of the object. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, is it? Let's move on. This next point, a sea of carbon fibre. Nick, if you'd asked me, I'd have said we've had a sea of carbon fibre for quite a long time in XC racing, but do you think there's space for other materials to come into play? I hope so, because it is a wash with carbon. I'd love to see some materials like even some super fancy high-end aluminium or, you know, even magnesium or, mm. dare I say it, graphene. 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 Wow, the next, wow. the unexplored frontiers. Mm. The promised <laughs> land, so they say. Mm. One micron thin. <laughs> wow. <laughs> cool. But, yeah, it's, it's been carbon for a while now, hasn't it? And uh, I think it's here to stay. As much as we sometimes see, you know, especially in like crit race and, and even some sort of Brit series, you see an aluminium bikes coming into the yeah. road race and in XC, carbon for life. But I think it's yeah. more frame design than anything else. I mean, lightness comes into it, but the design and the compliance they're putting into these bikes is certainly due to the material they're using. I suppose it's it's quite easy to engineer, as I say, a bit of compliance. Well, stiffness in the right place, compliance in the right place, and those tube shapes and the tube profiles and all that sort of thing is, is perhaps in some ways a little bit easier to do with carbon and keep the weight as low as you can. Tom, any thoughts on frame materials for XC bikes? Can you see anything coming out in the future, or do you think that sea of carbon fibre is going to be an ocean of carbon fibre for the next few years? I think it probably will. I, the main thing is just going to be the cost. Obviously, 3D printing is getting bigger and bigger all the time, but it is still prohibitively expensive. But I do think that carbon is going to be 
the main sort of thing though interesting i noticed that acto 5 their new iTrain, it's not really an xc bike but it's sort of similar to poly so they cnc machine two halves of the front triangle mm. and basically bond them together effectively and they're claiming it's just 1.2 kilos for the front end which is pretty light for an aluminium bike which can take up to a 140 mil fork so maybe as as aluminium technology continues to to grow we might see that obviously magnesium what pretty much every fork lower on the market nowadays mm-hmm. is still still magnesium i think it was it merida back in the day did a, a magnesium frame uh, but There'd i think be one quite, or two i had um, a yeah. scandium frame built by yeah. kona yeah, I was going to mention Scandium. Yeah, several friends had uh, Scandium, Kona, and Rocky Mountain frames. Yeah, I think one one mate had a Scandium Rocky Mountain Vertex. It was like eight and a half kilos or something stupid like that. Sparks, sparks would fly when you hit the deck with that. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't let them catch fire. Magnesium, anyway. Cool. All right, our next one on the list is like it or low that headset cable routing is here to stay. Now, we're not going to spend too long on this because that is an entire podcast in itself. And in fact, it has been a YouTube video in itself on the new MBUK vertical. And I did that with Will Soph. Um, headset cable routing, I, I feel most people loathe it from a working on it point of view. From an aesthetic point of view, maybe more people like it, but I think I'd agree it's here to stay. There are numerous advantages, numerous costs but we're not going to go into it too hard. A very quick summary, Nick, love it or loathe it? Uh, I think one of the commenters on the article summed it up perfectly with it only being the place for cable, internal headset cable routing. On the actual bikes that people buy, it's more pain than it is pleasure. But uh, no, if you've got someone else looking after your bike while you're racing it around, then yeah, it probably helps. It certainly helps make a strong argument for SRAM's access drivetrains. That's all I'm yeah. saying. And wireless brakes. Wireless brakes don't yet exist, but maybe <laughs> one day, who knows. Um, Tom, go on. What's your judgment? It has no place on any bike and <laughs> it needs to die. Right. Wow. Quite strong frankly, strong words there from, from I Tom Law. See, I see no, no benefits to it at all. It just annoys me. I, obviously, I recently tested the Scott Spark for the channel and the website and I've doing some experimenting swapping forks over something that should be so easy was so so difficult you know you need like almost like three sets of hands to do everything the, the scott system is not great either because it uses like proprietary headset spaces as well i know some of the bikes they actually go through the headset top cap which is a little bit better if i had to be really pushed to speak of something positive about it but yeah, no, please make make it disappear. Tube and tube was just about okay from an aesthetic point of view. Yeah, just just make it go away, please. In the interests of BBC balance, although we're not the BBC, but we should always be balanced. There are some positive arguments for through the headset routing. One, you don't have to put a hole in the side of your head tube, which you know whether it causes problems or not is extra engineering. It is potentially a little bit extra weight, and it does mean that. You know, there's a bit more time and effort having to be put into that. Less cable rub. Now, if you've got your tube in tube or your um, internal cable routing port in a place that isn't designed very well, you are going to get some cable rub. Um, I've seen it on plenty of bikes, making those paintworks look terrible. Aesthetics, it does look better, especially with those. It looks great. Um, Again, especially with wireless and those new stealth rooted brakes where the, the brake master piston is more in line with the handlebars. 
does look super clean if you've got very few cables rattling around at the front of your bike. And there's also an argument that I've heard, whether it's true or not, I don't really know, but it makes less interference between the cables and your steering, if that makes sense, so less resistance to your steering. I think that's a minor, a very, very minor benefit. But On that, though, I also heard the claim that, you know, in the heat of a battle and you're rummaging for places, there's less cable to be pulled out. So, you know, you're in not, a crash. Snapping, not snapping banjoes. Yeah. Um, so I have headset routed cabling through my Merida long-term bike. I have worked on that bike a few times recently, and it is a bit of a pain, I'm not going to lie, but it does look tidy. I still have more working to do because I, 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 uh, my dropper post cable is too long, so it looks really silly poking out the front <laughs> like that. Um, that's a task for another day when I've got a bit more patience. Right, our final one. And yet again, you'll be surprised to hear that this again ties into the more technical nature of XC Racing, which I think is basically <laughs> our, our major take-home. XC Racing isn't boring anymore. It's great. It's technical. It's, it's difficult. It's cool. It's fun to watch. You should watch it this weekend on whatever streaming service shows it. Um, I forget the name of it. Discovery Plus in the UK. Don't know what it is in the US anymore. Chunky tyre clearance. Big tyres on XC bikes are a good thing, in my opinion. Nick, would you agree with that? Or do you hark back to those days of 2-inch or 1.8-inch mud mud spikes and skinny rubber? Uh, it depends on what you're riding, I guess. Ah. If it's a super zippy course where it's not muddy and, you know, it's banked field, then, yeah, go super skinny. You're going to be pretty quick on those. But if you're going a bit more technical, like, you set the question up to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, for sure... Why wouldn't you? More comfort, more grip, lower pressures, you know, running tubeless setups, less chance of puncturing. It just makes sense. It's following the strides that, you know, every other sort of discipline mountain biking has and using those gains. So why wouldn't Mm -hmm. you? I've just finished riding some XC wheels recently, the Mika K1 Evo. I think they're 29mm internal width, which is really broad. You know, that's as wide as you get on an Enduro wheel. And they work really well with like 2.4 inch tyres. My favourite tyre at the moment, bar none except an ultra soft Magic Mary on my trail bike, um, is Max's Recon Race in a 2.4 wide trail. What an incredible tyre. It's really beautiful. Like It's got a skinny tread that's really low. It's quite densely packed, so it rolls super fast. But somehow they've engineered like this beautiful little shoulder that you just lean the bike a slightly bit and you've got tons of grip. And then because it's got that 120 TPI carcass, the tyre's super supple. It's really comfortable, like noticeably more comfortable than the Schwalbe tyre combo that I've got on another test bike at the moment, which is a Racing Rain and Racing Ralph. Both in there like lightweight racing things, but those Maxxis tyres are so good. They're so comfortable. Stick them in the mud, right, okay, they're, they're not great because that tread isn't particularly aggressive, but on any other surface, whether it's fast rolling tarmac, whether it's hard pack, roots, rocks, even when they're greasy and wet. It's such a good tyre. It blows me away every time. And obviously, if you want a bit more chunk, the standard Recon, again, absolutely brilliant in my opinion. Tom, what are your thoughts on wider tyres and XC? Are you happy to take that extra little bit of weight for the uh, increased rolling resistance, the better comfort, the better grip? I think you can tell my thoughts. Definitely, definitely. So, I mean, I... Back in my XC racing days, it was literally a race to the, the bottom, like who could get the, the lightest tires. Like I mean, I didn't run them because they were too expensive for teenage. Maybe you could get like Maxis Max Light like, 330s or something like that that were just stupidly light. Obviously, 330 referring to the, the grams that they are. I mean, even like I can't remember the last time I saw too many XC race tires under 700 grams each, 
or mm. that much under it. So they're getting on for double that weight. But like I say that recon race is such a it's such a good tire. You know, it just grips really, really well. Even it's obviously until recently it's not been, you know, available in one of their, you know, max speed sort of compounds. It's only been their their dual compound sort of thing, but it's still so grippy and so fast rolling. Mm. And yeah, they just give you more comfort, more control. And again, it comes back, you know, like, yeah, a smaller tire might be a fraction quicker for, for those top guys. But if they get a line choice slightly wrong or they're absolutely knackered at the end of a race and they flat or they fall off because they're on skinny tires, then it doesn't matter that they've saved 10 seconds over the course of a, a race because a rolling drum, you know, rolling resistance drum says it saves them, you know, 0.2 of a watt. Mm. It doesn't matter because they're on the deck and they've broken a collarbone and that's their season over. Yeah. So yeah, for me, I think it's it's a massive, massive benefit. You know, the 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 pros massively outweigh any marginal cons, in my opinion. So uh, so for sure, I know. Although Pidcock did opt for a 2.2 Continental Race King tire rather than you know sort of the the more standard sort of 2.35 and the 2.4. But he did have a fall as well. He did have he a fault. He did. He did have a fault. Yeah. Case Piece in point. One. Exactly. So it's all okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely stuff. All right, guys. We have rattled through that article uh, and talked about the world of XC racing. I think the themes are pretty common here. Cross country tech is more technical, it's more interesting. The bikes are better. The bikes are almost, I mean, you could ride many of these XC bikes as your regular trail bike these days, really. Maybe with a few slight alterations, I would add wider bars, for example. And Maybe you'd want some chunkier tyres if you are going to go and just razz around the woods. But generally speaking, XC bikes in 2023 are incredible machines that are incredibly fun to ride. Um, and we're looking forward to reviewing as many more of them this year as we can. Um, so I shall be... I, I think I've got one of the Cervelos on its way, actually, which I'm pretty stoked about. Ooh, nice. We're going to leave that there. Thank you ever so much, Tom. And thank you, Nick, for your insight, entertainment and expertise. It's really appreciated. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Share it with your friends because they might enjoy it too. And if you do have any questions, comments or suggestions for future podcasts or anything for our Tech Q&A podcast, don't forget our email address is podcast at bikeradar.com. Thanks ever so much for listening and we'll be back on Friday, twice a week. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode.